Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Hold Study is for Women. I am one of your hosts, Heidi, and I realize I've not been saying that or my name in the introduction at all, which is very unprofessional. Sorry about that. Anyway, we've got a very special episode for you today, so settle in for a great conversation that my fellow hosts and I, and that would be Desi and Kaylee, had with the one and only Franz Nikolai, the extremely talented author, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer who really helped define the Hold Steady's sound and has also released several really excellent solo albums of the years. We talked a bit about his new album, New River, what the next year is looking like for him, and bagpipes for some reason. Enjoy. Hey, guys. Hello. My voice just cracked like a 13-year-old. Congrats on puberty. My God, thank you. <laughs> How are you, Desi? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Long time no chat. Yeah, it's been like a whole year. But <laughs> I haven't talked to you guys since last year. Someone had those, to do it. Those are dad jokes that never get old, for real. Oh, man, it's been a whole year. A long time. My middle schoolers appreciate those jokes. Really? Yeah, the corny ones. I feel like that's the age where like corny stuff is not the coolest anymore. But I'm at yeah, I'm with the younger middle school crew, so they're still they're still cool. They'll yeah, they will still they still think I'm cool. <laughs> still have a sense of wonder a little bit. How was everyone's uh, holiday season? Well, I got COVID for Christmas, so that was not great. But otherwise, it was pretty good. I got to see my parents on new year's day and instead of you know, actual christmas and they have spent their new years with their friends for the past 40 years like the same friends so i got to be part cool. of a little bit of a belated new year's eve which was dinner and scrabble and my mom is such a dick when she plays scrabble i forgot she kept just being like i am winning you were down by 40 points and i was like mom if anyone said this to you you would cry so this is hilarious to me it was pretty funny that's awesome well, I'm sorry about your COVID. It was mild, yeah. though, right? Yes. I would like to give a special shout out to the bivalent booster and not so much of a shout out to having COVID in May also, but I think it probably helped made it not so bad. Yeah, I just got my booster yesterday because I had finally passed the recommended three mm -hmm. months from prior infection. Mm -hmm. Hoping that keeps protecting me. Desi, how about you? Uh, our holiday season was good. It was pretty quiet. Evan's brother came from LA to visit. So he stayed with us for a couple of days. It was super fun. And then for Christmas, we hosted everybody here. I, unfortunately, we discovered how easy it is to make a cheese ball. So we've made an undisclosed number of cheese balls since Christmas. Um, with the soft cheese and the nuts on the outside? Yeah, instead of nuts, I did bacon. Oh, wow. Yeah, fancy, fancy. Undisclosed but... number of cheese balls. That's very Midwestern. It's super Midwestern. There's a dad joke in there somewhere. Probably. <laughs> and then on New Year's, we went to, in the before times, we used to always go to, our one friends would host a whole bunch of people, and we would do a game night on New Year's Eve. So it was our first time doing that since 2020, I guess. Oh. So it was super nice to see them. And yeah, it was just a nice, like, chill, quiet New Year's Eve, which is the dream. That's awesome. My friend came over and we watched Ghostbusters 2 because it was recently pointed out to me that it's a New Year's Eve movie. And then, like, she went home a little early and then I was in my pajamas and remembered my friend Rachel was having a party nearby and it was fancy dress code. And I went anyway. 
my pajamas, but it was fun. That's so fun. We went to Florida for Christmas to see my parents, and my brother was there as well, uh, where we experienced record low temperatures. It got into the 30s and 40s in like southern Gulf Coast, Florida. So we all sat outside around my parents' like industrial restaurant heater so that we could be on the lanai. Uh, I warmed up for the last couple of days, but not the tropical Christmas that we had envisioned. Very weird. You should demand a refund from the state of Florida. You're right. DeSantis, you owe me this. Yep. Also, everything. I know. On New Year's, we, we went over to a friend's and watched two movies and had Chinese takeout. The kids went to sleep, so it was very relaxing. We watched the movie Reds, the Warren Beatty communist Heidi. Uh, I've seen that. It was a really long yeah. time ago, but yeah. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, it was like really, really good. And it's long, but it held my attention, which is saying something. Um, and then we watched Marcel the Shell and I just bawled my eyes out. The entire movie. It is. It was so good. Have you guys seen it? No. no, you have both of you have to watch it immediately. It's really good. Keely, have you ever seen Network? Yes. Wait, there's another one. Have you seen all the president's men? Not since I was a kid. I think you would like that now. Yeah. I should rewatch like it. And Robert Redford is like, fuck, man. Dreamboat. I love him. I love him. Anyway. I know. I know Warren Beatty's whole thing was his charm, but they're not lying. He's a charming man. Um, the other really good movie that Warren Beatty's in that I'm forgetting, the, the Parallax View. It's like a 70s conspiracy movie that's in the same vein as Three Days of the Condor, and he's very charming in it, and it's fucked up. I think you'd like it. Oh, I have to put that on our list. Yeah. It's crazy though. Reds is all based on true story of the mm -hmm. journalist from the early 20th century mm -hmm. who ended up mm -hmm. dying right around the Bolshevik Revolution. So it was really cool. There were a lot of good movies around that time. It's like my yeah. favorite time for movies. Here's my recommendation. Watch this movie from 45 years ago. Man, my life. <laughs> So what should we talk about today? Oh, hey, it's Heidi again. Just jumping back in here to say that while I'm confident we had a very witty and polished transition into our conversation with Franz right here, I'm still getting used to our new recording interface and cannot for the life of me find the part of the recording where that happened. And I don't want to delay this episode's release anymore. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. And no, I won't be quitting my day job. Now, please enjoy our conversation with Franz. I brought the candles out and everything. <laughs> we're recording officially oh well, it's awesome yeah. great happy new year thank you hi Franz. thanks for coming yeah thanks for coming happy to um, do it we are excited to just have a little chat today talk about your amazing new record definitely a highlight of the last year for me a little bit about your upcoming tour dates and teaching writing and wherever kind of the conversation goes on our end. So thank right. you again. Awesome. My pleasure. Um, Heidi, do you want to start us off with some of the questions you're thinking about the album? Yeah, totally. Okay. <laughs> Franz, so when we were looking at, the, these are the most tour dates I've seen, not only from the whole city, but from you too. Like, is this the most touring you'll be doing? Because it feels like it's the most you'll have been doing in the past few years. 
Yeah, since the last time I toured, which was 2015. I mean, new record, you got to play some shows. <laughs> I'm doing my scattered shows in the Northeast and, you know, the Gainesville show, which is like, I don't have a critical mass of people who are interested in what I do in any American city. But at this one festival, some percentage of them are, are assembled in one place. And so that, that works for me. But I am going to go to, to England in March for two weeks. That's where I can actually have a, a fan base that can justify that. Yeah. And I feel like touring right now, it feels just so risky because like best laid plans, it seems like it's been difficult for everyone. Like I saw Jeff and Laura having to cancel shows that they made. At well, least it's not even me. touring. I mean, just yeah. in my family, there's four of us. And in the last four weeks, we had three COVIDs, two streps, a flu, an intestinal bug, a couple random colds. I mean, we haven't had, a, a, I don't think, a single day since I got back from New York, from from Brooklyn Bowl, where, where the whole household was healthy. So that's going to happen whether I'm on tour or not. That's true. Yeah. You're right. May as you're well right. go play shows. It's great. Like being in a school right now is really just, you're rolling the dice every day with like, what germs will I come home with today? Yeah, Crazy. it's like, am I going to come home from Brooklyn Bowl with something weird? Yes, but also I have two kids in public school, so right. they're going <laughs> to... Yeah, and right now Oliver, Oliver's in public school too, and like he's in a weird growth spurt phase where he's sleeping like 14 hours a day, which is great. We love to see him rest and be happy, but it's also like, okay, is this just normal growing pain sleep or is it a weird cold bug thing? Oh, just enjoy the sleep, right? Don't don't question it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Check out, make sure they're go, check in every hour. Make sure they're breathing, and then and then go to bed yourself. Yeah, genuinely. <laughs> Another successful day sleep, parenting. Let me and call it a night. <laughs> are, exactly. um, are there any venues you're going to play at that you've been trying to get to for a while that you're looking forward to in particular? For the band or for me? you for me i think it's more about people that i'm excited to play with yeah like the catskill show is st lennox you guys some mm -hmm. people know and yeah john and dan which is these two guys uh, it's john from from guignol and dan from this band barbez also some people may know as a new yorker writer about politics i'm playing with jimmy montague in new hampshire you, you guys know him don't know that this he 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 had a great record I guess it was two years ago now, called Casual Use, kind of doing the, like, Billy Dan, Billy Joel kind of vibe. Oh. Casual Use yeah. is a great album name. Casual yeah, Use, yeah. And this that. show in Philly, I think, is going to be fun. This group called Tisburys, I feel like people who are into the Hold Steady would be into Tisburys. They kind of remind and, me of Marat, if you remember that band. Oh, yeah. yeah. Timeshares, too, right? Timeshares, yeah. I like Timeshares okay. What I really like is Max Stern's solo record. And something cool, there's, well, I won't say. There's a, there's a kind of a cool thing coming together about the UK tour. Ooh. Is your personal UK tour going to overlap with the London shows? It wasn't going to, but then I realized that, that basically I'm, I'm scheduling this stuff around spring breaks. Yeah. I don't have mm -hmm. to cancel too many classes. And so I realized that the dates I had given the UK guy booking the tour were starting like four days, five days after the London Hold Steady shows. So it's like, well, that's stupid. Why? I'll just stay in England. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That What's the point well. of flying back, flying back from London to try to teach two classes? Right. 
Well, I'm I'm personally excited because the Faces Brewery in Malden is like a minute drive from our house. We moved outside of Boston, so excited to see you in February. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Excellent. We played there, just me and Kiri as a duo, and it was like a really nice experience. It's a really nice, yeah, space. Yeah, it's a. I, I feel like I'm out of touch with what goes on in Boston right now, but it's the same people who put me on at Charlie's Kitchen yes. a bunch of years ago. Yep. That was like an out-of-nowhere super fun show. Yeah. That was nice fun, yeah. People. Yeah, it feels like a real venue, though, because like, on that tour, we played another brewery where it was like we are in the corner of a brewery, like not an actual show, but when we got there, they have a beautiful live room because it's a new building. I guess someone thought that made sense, and hey, we can always use more of those, right? Yeah, great. Yeah, I really liked it. So lucky you, uh, Kaylee, get to see you there. <laughs> I know. And close to home. This is a win win. I know. Yeah. You're like, this is so convenient for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, like we said at the intro, New Rivers, it's a beautiful record, really. Congratulations all around. Definitely one of my favorites of this past year. And we were just thinking a little bit about the remote recording experience that you had with New River. Do you think that this allowed for some more collaborations that maybe would have been harder to pull off if that wasn't an option that you were working with? Yeah, obviously. I mean, one of the things about the pandemic is that a lot of the musicians I know upgraded their home recording situation in a major way. They had some extra money from not going out, not going to restaurants and stuff. And it was just something to do. So people bought new microphones and it wasn't two months into the pandemic before I started getting those emails like, hey, can you play on this record? Can I send you some tracks? I mean, a, a bunch of them. I did the Sincere Engineer record and the Crushed Ice record and the Telethon record and others I'm sure I'm forgetting. And then I was like, well, I could do that. But I actually don't think of that as a remote recorded record, New River, because I did go into the studio and do basic rhythm <laughs> tracks and mix in the studio, you know, like the people adding their little bits and bobs with it. Um, and that, that's only possible because. But the record itself, I demoed it in my office, but I waited a year to record it because I wanted our Babajan to play drums on it. He was in Jersey, I was in California. It's a funny record to talk about because it took so goddamn long to make all the logistical problems, you know, an, a year waiting to record it because of COVID and then 18 months on vinyl delays. And by the time it's finally out, it's like, ugh, you know, <laughs> on, the newest songs on here are already two years old. And the oldest ones are like, that ain't oh, years old. We had that but that's always the case, right? You're, you're always, you're, you're always talking about the, the thing that you made a long time ago. And right. just like, well, when you're already about thinking about the next morning, working on something else. Yeah. Which was what was so fun about the Bandcamp singles. That that whole half or however long that was. Yeah. Boom. You know. Yeah. It's a it's a cool thing where you can in well, not that it happens all that often, but you can reasonably you, you could write a song in the morning, record it in the afternoon, you know, play it in front of people live if you wanted to that night and then upload it to streaming services, you know. It's a I don't know that I don't know that people do that. But you, you can't, the idea that you can is pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, did you do any virtual, like virtual live sets? Like on... I did, uh, somebody asked me to do one. It was like a fundraiser for some 
12-hour marathon, come on and play a few songs. Nice. I didn't, in, as a genre of performance, I didn't care for it. I was just playing like this to myself with no mm -hmm. other faces and no feedback whatsoever. So it's just like, well, hi, hi guys, uh, here's, here's the song. <laughs> Hope you liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was, we did a couple of them. And then I remember we also asked when my friend Emily was running for office, Jeff Rosenstock used to be my neighbor. So he would have been her constituent. So he did a quick virtual set for us. And it was like, that's really cool. But it's also just so weird. That it's just Jeff like screaming in a room like, yeah. to his computer. <laughs> yeah. Even playing in front of a thousand people, it's still a little bit of an acting job sometimes. You can act as if, um, yeah. but not my preferred way of doing things. Yeah. Some people seem yeah. to really embrace that and others were like, yeah. Well, look, if, you're, if your vibe is like bedroom pop anyway, and it's really self-effacing and it's shy and it's, you're uncomfortable on stage and you want to capture that feeling of what it was recording it into your garage band, then I'm, I bet it works. That's not how I feel on stage, you know? Yeah. So. And seeing yourself is also weird. That was weird. I feel like that's, as we mentioned, <laughs> it's weird to see yourself doing that stuff. It's weird to see, yeah, right, Yeah, of course. It's the, I think it's a problem with mirrors in general, right? Or just like, not even mirrors, but like someone takes a picture of you from behind and you're like, oh. that's not what, that's what I look like from what, from behind? Like you put yourself together facing a mirror and you're right. like, yeah, that's what I look like. I look good, you know, <laughs> but you don't know what the, what the back business looks like. It's like, oh, you know, you always have, yeah. this, you, have you have a mental image I guess people talk about this with body dysmorphia. Like you have the you have the mental image of what you feel like you look like, and then you have to confront sometimes. Like I'll, the times when I've been you know twenty or thirty pounds heavier, I'm still buying clothes based on thinking of myself as a slim person because that's sort of like, <laughs> it's it's like this is what I look like. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I look like. Yeah, yeah. I got it. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. That's what I remember at the way beginning of pandemic when we were just doing remote teaching, I would record myself reading the slides for the students and embed a video. And it was so weird watching them back because I was like, that's what I sound like. Those are the mannerisms that I make. Oh, my God. Why is anyone listening to me? It's just like takes you out of the lesson completely. And the then eventually on, yeah, on Zoom, I was just like, let's just minimize myself over here. I'll just look at my students. We don't need to see how I'm teaching this. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really distracting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, especially in those situations, you want, I guess you have to keep your, your camera on so you know what they're seeing. Right. But, you know, in case some- But not focus you, on it. But not focus on it, but that's impossible, right? Yeah. Like I'm, even yeah. right now, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> You're like, I'm killing this, so yeah. <laughs> One thing, I've been able to like bring myself to listen to a podcast that I've been on, you know. I was wondering. I just have to trust the. That's <laughs> it. I'm not going to listen to this because I can't. I don't want to know what I actually sound like. <laughs> Although you, you hear the comedians who are like, "That's the way they work. That's the way they workshop this stuff, right? You record the set yeah. and listen to back back to it, and that's probably the right way to do it. But that's in probably terms why of, in terms of the editing happens. process. But that's why. This having a having a recorded conversation, luckily, is not like the core of my art form. <laughs> yeah, when we first started 
listening to our recording this, I would listen to the episodes as they aired. I was like, that's how I say album. That's how, like, why am I saying um so much? Is this what I am like on a daily basis? And it just, it's a really weird experience. The only time I had to deal with that in a really intense way that I couldn't escape it was again, like I did a bunch of interview book I'm working on it, transcribing those interviews. 80 hours of this stuff where you're, you have to listen to yourself, try to be friendly to someone you don't know, ask them, you know, <laughs> formulate a question, push back, you know, reassure them if they give like all this, all this sort of like stammering and stuttering and trying to articulate yourself. Uh, God, the worst. Yeah. The experience of editing this podcast has been really interesting for me because I just have to listen I to it. I cannot imagine. It's, well, and, you know, I do PR and, and a lot of my clients are podcasts. So I end up listening to tons and tons of podcasts. And now I can tell when someone has edited out an um, because I've right. been doing it so much. I'm like, they, that, they just, <laughs> that wasn't what they said that, you know, I can tell when they like cleaned up a sentence now, but I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't been actually doing it myself. And it's, it's like, do I want to know this? I don't think I do. <laughs> Don't That's one really... of the things that the podcast, uh, the spread of podcast has really, I don't know why I thought for so many years I would listen to Fresh Air and be like, well, they're so composed and they have their answers all together. And it's like, oh, of course they edit it. For so whatever like... dumb reason, it had never occurred to me before that, that it happened. That's what they do. <laughs> Sometimes you'll be like, oh, there'll, there'll be like a 20 minute interview and then a bunch of filler. It's like, oh, I guess that wouldn't <laughs> get any material out of that one. I guess someone went poorly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, talking about all of this and also teaching. So you are, I, congratulations, going to be on Columbia's faculty, I saw. Yeah. That's I, awesome. You know, my, my full job is at, my main job is at Bard still, but right. teaching a class right. down at Columbia. That's, that's yeah. great. That's awesome. Do you feel like, I often, like, when I come home, just depleted from the day, I'm like, Teaching is a performance. Do you feel like there is like some performance intersection between teaching and and music? One hundred percent. When I first started teaching, my my initial reaction immediately was like, "Oh, this is exactly like doing those solo shows. It's getting up in front of a room full of strangers and trying to make them feel like you can justify their attention for this fixed period of time." The the people at a club have paid an entrance. You know, they can leave, but they've paid an entrance fee, so they're invested in staying. And these, you know, the kids can. They have to be there for the grade or whatever. But yeah, to make it feel like they're paying attention to you is absolutely the case. And you get the same nerves and euphoria in the five to 10 minutes before and the same just like excess energy after just the black depression if it went, if it went badly, <laughs> you know, but, but I definitely come out of it, come out of the classroom the same way as I come off stage. Chat, 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 chat eat some and drink some and I got all this extra energy and God, I'm going to answer some emails, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I teach two of the same, like four classes, but two of the like different sections. So I end up having like, this is my first show and this is my second show. Let's see what I did wrong in the first one that I can rework for the late crowd this afternoon. And then, but I like hear myself using the same jokes and material and then you get to see how it lands with the kids after lunch as opposed to the kids in the morning but i teach middle schoolers so it really depends on the day <laughs> yeah well i had that experience a couple of years ago i was teaching two sections of the same class at berkeley and and one stacked right after the other and it was definitely like the second show was way tighter right <laughs> you're like oh that worked much better 
when I knew how it was going to land, like, and I knew to use this example and not that example. And yeah. Yeah. Also, sometimes that just like, you know, pressure's on, you just got to keep talking. You land on some interesting ideas that you didn't have in your class notes, you know, because just like somebody asked you an interesting question that knocked something loose. And then you're like, oh yeah, let me add that for the next time I teach this or like for the the next class in 45 minutes. Like that's a good bit. Like crowd work. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm like, oh, there's a mistake I left in on the classwork. So I'm going to quickly change that before my next 12 year old critic sees it and calls me out on it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is there's, there's middle schoolers. I imagine they're coming in from a place of skepticism and definitely like hard undergrads, middle-aged white guy in front of them. There's there's a, there's an aspect of like, bring your A game and justify your existence. Especially at Bard. I had a lot Especially of friends that at, went there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about a Bard student is like, you're going to be challenged. They're, yeah. they're sharp. You know, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. either, they're, you know, the best Bard student is like, graduate student. Yeah. Funny. They're, they're funny. Mm-hmm. The two schools I applied to that I didn't get into were both Bard and Vassar, but my parents were so relieved because they were like, that's, that's fucking expensive. Well, I could have gone. Well, a lot my, cheaper to go. This, you know, yeah. So I went yeah. to SUNY. Well, so my yeah, dad worked. SUNY, yeah. I went to SUNY New Paltz, but my dad worked at Vassar, so I could have gotten for free, but I didn't make it in. So, sorry. <laughs> I was not, I had untreated ADHD in high school. It was not great. Um, but I, you know. I, my friends who went to Bard, like when we would compare our college experiences, I was like, we are having very different experiences. <laughs> my aunt is a retired high school guidance counselor up in the Albany area uh, when I started working here. Yep, I didn't always have students that I would recommend to go to Bard, but once in a while you would get that one student that that was the only place for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very specific type of person. It's How a many? Specific type. Yeah. How many years have you been at Bard now? Started it in 2015. Um, you know, I've been, fo- my wife's an academic, so I've been sort right. of like following her, tra- trailing her career. Uh, so she started in 2014. I started teaching in 2015. We went out to Berkeley for 2018, 19, 20, mm-hmm. came back summer of 21. This is a total aside, but um, one of Maria's, band's old songs about parking pops yes. into my head every time I'm parking. <laughs> every time. Same. Absolutely same. Yeah, I'm just like, my, driveway, my too small. Sister had, my sister lives in Flatbush, and we drive down there, and it's just like, driveway, too small. I, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's right, um, alley, the driveway, deb- alley. Yes! <laughs> uh, the debutante hour were, were a great band. Um, and, uh, they had a song about, I, I forget the actual name of the song, but it's just, it's called it parking. The, it's called parking. Okay. <laughs> Pretty sure it's, it's called parking. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most, but aside from that, I also really enjoy following Maria on Facebook because she's been one of the best sources of information about Ukraine. So, you know, I really, yeah. you know, she, I was like, yeah, what I'm, is actually I'm, going on? I want to read what Maria says. He's, I, I think probably People listening to this will know she's Ukrainian-American. Her research is in Ukraine. Her, you know, her books are about Ukraine. So she's been obviously super busy. You cut out yeah, a little bit, but you said hour. that you've been super busy. She's been super busy. She's been super for, busy. For yeah. obvious reasons. 
But yeah, yeah. the Debutant Hour, people should check out that those records. They're very fun. And they're like, sneak, sneaky, uh, sneaky deep. Yeah, yeah. No, they were so great. Just um, Novelty women... songs with a deep well of existential depression. They would well, play... What more could you want, honestly? <laughs> That's what I'm... And they are indirectly the reason that, sorry, I'm getting off topic, but they're indirectly the reason that I started doing music for the Chris Gethard show because my friend Zane, who was in the band Toys and Tiny Instruments and Mind Troll, booked the Debutant Hour. Chris loved them. Chris Gethard loved them so much. And then based on how much he loved them, he asked Zane to do all the music booking. And Zane said, I can't. I need help. And that's how it happened. So indirectly. Thanks. Yeah. So thanks. All connected. And the small (laughs) circle of like... uh... Indie, indie, indie adjacent cello players. <laughs> yeah, right. totally, totally. Maria from the Debutant I, Hour, Emily yep. from Pearl and the Beard, Heidi from I, Early Riser. Pearl and the Beard, yeah. I actually also went, I went to see A Strange Loop last night with Hallie Bullet, Chris Gethard's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, with, so the world remains very small. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, cousin's, oh God, how old is he? Eight-year-old brought out his uh, recently acquired cello on... Thanksgiving and I was like Parker you could have a career in punk rock music let me tell you about all of the possibilities he was yeah. like oh, okay <laughs> he played hot cross buns yeah murder by death right Sarah from murder by death yeah I'm the only it's the only instrument I know how to play like that's it I don't know how to play anything else I have a bass I attempt to play sometimes that's it Desi do you want to talk a little bit about some of our podcast related questions sure Obviously, the whole study is for women. Rock music is for women. And so the focus of our podcast is talking about some of the disconnect we've seen with the old studies specifically and their purported fan base of the, like, a bar band for dudes versus our lived experience. purported. Yeah. Yeah. Versus our kind of lived experience as fans of the band. Is that something that you've seen change over time? Is that something that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I really didn't think, especially in like the 06, 07 years, it was, I mean, look, we were a hip band at that point. So we were getting a hipster crowd, which is a much more mixed crowd. My perception was that it changed a little bit on the tour after Stay Positive. Again, Mm -hmm. this is like totally subjective. And I I question all my memories from this era, (laughs) you know, because I found so many of them to be unreliable. I felt the distinct change after that record and i think it must have had something to do with like get hammered and and whoa whoa like the title track that there was something about those aspects that brought out the a fratty or broier crowd i remember specifically there was this week run that we did across the country that was like midwestern colleges and there was one show at like a student center with like or pushing up and knocking over the key i i hate these people you know, it was like, I don't want to play for a crowd like this. I think the fact that it's become such a trope around the band is really depressing to all of us. I don't know whether we're supposed to talk about what's in, in the book, but I think it was Kaylee, you wrote that essay, right? That was your mm-hmm. essay? I was really moved by that idea about, the, you know, it hadn't occurred to me to... The, the way you framed it, which is that I discovered this band, the music really speaks to me, and then I read the discourse around it that says this is that it's not for me. That like broke yeah. my heart to hear that. Um, and it makes me it makes me feel like the, the all the Twitter jokes you see around around about the guy the, like inventing a you know the, the stereotype of the guy who likes the hold steady is like is actually not 
just, you know, um, toothless or not just in good fun that like, there's a real, there's a real damage around that. It was like, as I, I talked about in that essay, like I grew up in the emo subculture, which is another subculture that women were so isolated from, unless you're the subject of a song. And I stopped going to shows because I was like, I don't feel a part of this anymore. Like I don't fit in, you know, I love seeing live music and I love how I feel. And then when I saw Behold Steady for the first time, I was like, there's that feeling again. And like, it's like, I'm here and I'm home. And then seeing, you know, those jokes on Twitter, they were really bad after the Mountain Goats Hold Steady uh, show was announced for in Chicago. It was like, everything I saw was like, get your flannel shirt ready and, and be and crack open a beer. It's the Hold Steady and the Mountain Goats. And I was like, very creative. That's, uh... I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's so hacky. Every, yeah. Everyone clearly thinks they're the first person to make this joke. Um, but it's also like, is it really that different from other bands? Like, no. if you go to a metal show, is it not, you know, 98% dudes? Like, I don't know why the, why it's it's attached itself to our band specifically in that way. I, I, I'm a little flummoxed by that. It's something we all spend a lot of time thinking about, too. <laughs> and uh, it's, I don't think... Certainly at this point, I don't think it's coming from us. Um, I don't think it ever was. uh, We put a lot of effort in trying to make sure our stages are as as diverse as we have control over. Yeah, no, Uh, I don't think it comes from the band at this point at all. Bands, you know, and also it's like you don't want to be... We like the dudes, too. (laughs) Like the dudes (laughs) with the the beards and the glasses. Like, that's a core constituency, no doubt about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah like i'm married bands, one he just doesn't have a beard yeah yeah bands we you know you don't have the power to curate your audience and you're right. just happy that anyone comes so it's like it's this weird thing to try to to try to talk about yeah especially yeah. when i do, it never came from you it always came from the media kind of like projecting it onto the band indie rock whatever yeah yeah and what you say about like because i I first saw y'all in 2006 and ironically the reason I knew about your band was from a dude I liked but whatever how many years later like we're still friends but I definitely started going to shows without him um and so much more than that but I I do remember like just music was so weird at that time too like in 2006 2007 and this has been said this is not an original thought but there was so much synth pop that when there was something with guitars everyone was like whoa okay, great, you know, like, let's go see the guitars. And it was, like, almost an uncool that became very cool at that moment. And it was, it really was just a moment. Now that we're not being dominated by, like, the rapture <laughs> and the faint, it doesn't stand apart as much. Um, no, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of the, the under 35 bands are guitar bands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I wouldn't call a whole steady crowd like homogenous in like a a huge way. But I do think that there is diversity within a hold steady crowd. You know, there's age diversity, there's socioeconomic diversity, there's gender diversity. It's you can meet all sorts of people lining up for a show and then going and waiting, especially if you get there two, three hours early um, and waiting for the show to start and like I, I feel like I have a wide range of friends that I've met from hold steady shows. We all have different jobs, we all have different paths in life. And you know, my core group of friends who are women are from 
hold steady shows. So it's just when I have my experience and then I read like, get your lawnmower ready and crack open your beer. It's time for another hold steady record. I'm like, oh, actually never mowed a lawn. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes me think back on the uh, the first time I saw the band and I wasn't like reading a lot. I wasn't on the boards like I didn't read a lot of Rolling Stone or whatever. The first time I saw you was at Calvin College in Grand Rapids in 2008, maybe. That was that tour that I'm talking about, although that was a different that obviously that was a very different experience. I was going to say, I feel like that kind of skewed my my viewpoint of what it was like to go see the band, because first of all, it's at a Christian college, so nobody was drinking. Yeah. yeah. And second of all, there were so many women that were there. I was out like on the front, like up against the stage, but it was just like me and a bunch of other girls. So then when I started reading more, like getting more involved in the fandom and realized that there, there was the stereotype of like dad's weekend out or whatever, it was even more of a disconnect for me because again, it wasn't what I had seen, but again, outlier that that concert was yeah i mean i agree i don't i don't know you it's, you can't push back on it you can't really correct a, a public perception that's coming from people who basically are not that invested in the band right you know what i mean <laughs> that's yeah. sort of they like wanna... self they just want to make a, a quick cheap joke yeah. yeah i was gonna say before you signed on we googled the phrase hold steady bar band to see the last article that it had popped up in and it was like a couple months ago after the Brooklyn Bowl show. So we were like, okay, <laughs> still holding strong. Yeah. That's just part of like Iraq culture also too, is like inventing a stereotypical fan of a particular band that you think is kind of lame and taking a shot at them. Yeah. The Mountain Goats thing was so weird to me too, because I was like, if you follow Don Darnielle's internet presence at all, he is not, a, like a party bro like at, at all it, it's, it's like you know it, it's just not like when I was first into the Mountain Goats fans I was like oh no this is like the most nerdy like uh cerebral fan base I've ever seen and it might also have to do with like my age at this point because it doesn't feel like 2006 was a long time ago or you know Mountain Goats I got into probably a little earlier but it has just been so long that like the fandom's the, it's like the tropes get reduced even further, like the farther away we get from the beginning. It just feels weird to be like, oh, we're part of history now. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, 100%. There are people who are like, do your students, do they know about the band? It's like, no, they were literally infants when boys and girls. Like, they, oh, they neither Jesus. know nor care. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering that, actually. I was like, I wonder if any Hold Steady fans are, are uh, his undergrads, but no. No, I've run across a couple Mountain Goats fans, right? Like they have, for whatever reason, have a little bubble of a age. Yeah, I've noticed that their fan base is really young. Uh, the last Mountain Goats show I went to, I was surprised. I was like, I'm, I'm the oldest person here. And it was a lot. Of, I think they blew up on Tumblr. Uh, and so I think it's like a big Tumblr <clears throat> fan base. Yep. Yeah. For whatever reason. Anyway, I had a couple students in my fiction workshop after the Chicago shows got announced. Like... Is your band playing with the Mountain Goats? <laughs> like, you know, headlining, not for nothing. <laughs> and now they think you're cool. They're like, the Mountain Goats are playing with us. With now, us. Yeah, that was, that was impressive to them. <laughs> that is, that's really funny. On a personal note, I'm pretty upset that that show is in July as I 
am due to give birth in July, what? which is, I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I found out, I think, mere days before that show was announced. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. But like, <laughs> dream. Love. But no, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> and just, I found out just a couple of days before Brooklyn Bowl. But yeah. 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 Yep. But Desi, you'll well, be there, right? Yep. I will be there. Hi, are you going? For you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure yet because I already am going to Chicago in the summer because Katie Lynch is getting married. I just got to crunch the numbers is really what I got to yeah. do. I got to see if it makes sense. So I'm going to yeah. the points, <laughs> you know? I'm going to try for the May Boston shows, but we'll see. Seven months pregnant. I'm not sure how that one's going to go, but maybe. We'll get you a chair. Can we, yeah. <laughs> I'll bring a, a folding lawn chair and just really lean into the dad thing. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this um, is what they meant. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we were thinking about, you know, you have a variety of ways that you express yourself creatively, obviously. Writing, essays, fiction, nonfiction, music. Um, do you, dance, flower yes, your, your ballet career. Yeah. <laughs> we were wondering, um, is there, like, how, how do you know that when an idea is, you're like, this is a song, I'm going to make this a song versus this is going to be a piece of longer writing or this is going to be an essay? So for the words stuff, I don't. I have the same slush file for the for words. It's just this 50-page document of just little scraps of quotations or things that somebody said or the, a way of putting something that I thought of in when I was half asleep and all that. It just goes all into the same pile. And every time I need to put something together, I'll print it out and start paging through it. These days, I'm usually writing the music first for the song, so I'll just have it playing and just be going through and things that fit the rhythm that I'm looking for and then look for the near rhymes and start. Yeah. And I have it there when I'm next to me when I'm writing fiction too. Just uh, to, so I don't know, sometimes it's just a well of words. Yeah. And sometimes I've double dip. <laughs> um, your novel you started when you were doing your MFA, right? I started it before that. I used okay. the first chapter was my application for me. Oh, cool. So the MFA was also was instrumental in the sense that if I'm going to keep teaching, I need a, I need a terminal degree. And, uh, and then if I do this, I can probably get this novel finished. Yeah, Holy the time that, yeah. That's how that uh, went. Yeah, I, my graduate degree is in creative writing, and I, God, having that dedicated time to writing was just the best thing that that gave me. Yeah, the rolling deadlines, the hard deadlines were the thing. Yes. Definitely for me. Yeah. And also just sort of like feeling like I was credentialed in a, you know, in a way that I never was necessarily to have that aspect. Like sometimes it's just easier to go through the proper channels. Yeah. In terms of like finding yourself a place in an institutional capacity um, and having a, having a CV that's legible. <laughs> Instead you, of, yeah, well, because I was coming into a music department, you know, without a PhD, right? Um, with like, like, here's my DIY PhD. Um, and yeah, yeah, you can see the difference in the results. It's way easier to, to make things happen if people understand where you're coming from. can right. briefly scan your bio and be like, oh, yeah, you've you know, you've done this residency, you have this MFA, you have these teaching gigs, and like you can frictionlessly move on. 
as opposed to having to like, yeah, I founded this new music organization. Oh, what's new music? Well, it's this, this sort of thing. And I was in this band. You've never heard of them, but a lot of people care about them. Before that, I was in this other band that you've never heard of, but a lot of people also care. Like, it's just, it's just too complicated. Yeah. Yeah. For as I much know. as academia likes to talk about going outside the boundaries and guidelines, they actually really love structure and following appropriate channels. I think there's a structural, in some ways, like, look, I'm not a, like a, a pure academic, so I'm right. talking out of it. But my impression from an outsider insider at this point is that there is a conflict between two warring imperatives, one of which is um, the DEI imperative in which you want to structure all the hiring processes so neutrally mm-hmm. that, if, that you, you make it as near to a meritocracy as, po- meritocracy as possible. Mm-hmm. But what that does is it bureaucratizes it to the point where you actually... You, you can't really hire anyone who hasn't gone through the channels. Yeah. You can't, because that, that is one of those things that in some cases leads to people hiring their friends or like people that they're that the, in their social circle, which you know, everybody's social circle is sort of homogenous. So yeah. it reproduces power structures, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not such a tension. Nobody's doesn't in that world doesn't know. I don't think. <laughs> No, it's Other the tension don't too know that. Most people don't know about that. So it's interesting yeah. to hear, I think, in general. Yeah. Um, like between the imperative for diversity and the imperative for, for trying to get people who aren't credentialed in the very traditional. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. I teach at a New England private school and it's the same with trying to get new staff and even students, which is like we want to have a diverse student base, but we also need to think about like funding and tuition and who can get to Concord, Massachusetts and Concord, Massachusetts is not the most diverse town in Massachusetts. So it's, yeah, it's definitely. And how do you look at the student applications if you're trying to get people whose parents can't afford a ton of after-school programs and extra projects and tutors and who are just sort of high achieving in general? Yep. Yep. Yeah. What I was going to say is that my mom never got her master's in music education because my, so my mom was a public school teacher first to high school and then elementary general for 30 years. And when she went to college, you didn't need to have your master's to do that. Like she taught at my high school, like right out of undergrad. She obviously was very, very qualified, but towards the end of her career, she had to actually get a master's because it meant that her pension and stuff like her, her salary and her pension would never be as what she deserved basically even though she had been practically doing the job for 30 years, she had to actually just go back to school. Like she would take these random classes and just add up to an, uh, to a master's to just get her where like, so technically someone who had graduated from like their master's like four years before was more qualified than she was like on paper. I remember she was just very like resentful of that towards the end. Yeah. I can true. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But she's she's retired now and she's happy. A <laughs> <laughs> church music director because she doesn't know how to not have a job. But she's <laughs> getting there. A different kind of institution. <laughs> well, she went. She was teaching. She was doing the church music director thing at the same time that she was a teacher. So like my entire oh okay life, yeah. So my entire life has like you don't you can't suck at music. You're literally not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a nepo baby. Is that what you're? <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, hey, man, they made, they were like, you will play an instrument when I was nine. And I was like, uh, okay. So that's why I, I play. What, I think that's what Evan's parents said to him too, which is why I married someone who plays bagpipes. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he took bagpipe lessons from one of the composers of the ER theme song, which is like my favorite what? TV effect. Cause that's my favorite TV show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, bagpipes. So Does he practice them in the house? No, he doesn't have a, uh, he doesn't uh, have that. I wish that he did because I would love it. They're so loud. You have no yeah. idea how loud they are. Yeah. Our neighbors, I think would love it. My dog, <laughs> I think well, that's, that's sort of what I was getting at. Yeah. When, when I was an undergraduate, uh, there was a bagpiper. I don't think he was in the music program, but he would come in on Sundays and practice at the top of the building uh, because he, that was when there was no one else there in theory. But it was just, I mean, you're talking about a 12-story building in Greenwich Village, and you could hear it in the entire building. You'd always know what day it was. It, That's true. You yeah. always know it's Sunday, <laughs> Sunday when you hear the bagpipes. <laughs> Actually, at the same church that I was talking about, we did have a Sunday school teacher at one point who was like the weirdo Sunday school teacher, and he played bagpipes and would just walk around the church grounds because he lived on site too and like my mom i would be with my mom on shift to go practice and then it would just be like bagpipes and my mom would be like well i was gonna practice the organ but i guess i'm not <laughs> yeah i mean you're talking about I, I think you're supposed to walk around while you're playing it like that's part of the proper practice yeah. i'm pretty sure it's an outdoor instrument right it's supposed to be you're playing no it on the one the one hill and hear it two hills away yeah we did have them at my, my uncle's funeral, and I was shocked at how loud they were. And they weren't obviously, like, they weren't doing them at full blast because we were in a more enclosed area. But I was like, that is a loud instrument. And beautiful, but very loud. Totally analog. It is one is of those things thing. that's interesting to think about, about instruments, which ones are meant to be played outdoors. Right? Yeah. Piano, pianos and violins, stringed instruments, those are indoor instruments. Trumpets, bagpipes, drums. They're outdoor instruments, they're military instruments, right? Or even yeah. like some of the vocal styles, like this sort of like Eastern European village acapella, you know, like the, the, that like really nasal, really projecting style is because you're standing on the hill, you're calling, you're trying to summon the spring sort of thing. Like they're outdoor styles, they're meant for projecting. There's a practical reason. For... There's a practical reason. <laughs> yes. Why these, yeah, yeah, exactly. For the volume. Uh, Franz, are, do you kids play in any instruments yet? My daughter uh, was take. We were giving her piano lessons during the pandemic when we were all stuck inside. Oh. Once that ended, the short answer is not really. She's yeah. Playing, she started playing clarinet and band. He's not that interested. Although his his best friend came over the other day and demonstrated that he's really good at piano for a six year old. So now I think he might be interested. Ooh. I don't know. We're not pushing them on it. Pushing it yeah. on them. That's for sure. I think it would be. I just sort of think as a general skill, it's good to know a little piano and and to know your way around music. But, um, you know, both of us are musicians and we have this sort of complicated relationship to it in terms of like, yeah, it's what we do. It's what we've done since we were little. Um, but it's not like, like, I don't romanticize it in any way okay. in terms of like, I want to push them to be a musician. Like, yeah. They really want to. So <laughs> them to do something Whatever, whatever that is that they feel that strongly about. There's musical Follow instruments around. If, if they want to pick it up, they're there. And <laughs> I can show them how to play them. Yeah. They'll, they'll do something else. <laughs> I think that's a good attitude to have. My husband's a musician as well. And so he's like, well, I have always dreamed about 
having my future child, like learning how to play an instrument and jamming with me. And I'm like, if they want to, if that's what their heart is drawn to. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a conversation I want to have with Steve sometime. Yeah. You know, about like what it's like going into the same field as you. It's such, it's such an old fashioned, it's like a medieval guild system kind of way of structuring <laughs> your life. Like you do what your dad did. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that the like the benefits and disadvantages of that his daughter plays I mean, I a think, little bit right i don't know if his i don't know that about i don't think i know my friends with kids who are music the, the musician friends i don't think a lot of them the kids are playing music maybe peter hess's daughters i feel like as a kid you're like don't want to necessarily do what your parents do anyway. You need your form of rebellion. Well, that's why I think it's so interesting that Steve ended up being a guitar player. Yeah. You know, yeah. obviously it's a different kind of yeah. guitar than, than I, my understanding is his dad did. One of the, yeah. one of the benefits from talking to people is I feel like the musicians, especially in the rock world, whose parents were also rockers, there's a real benefit and you don't have the same learning curve in terms of how to carry yourself. Like, you know mm -hmm. how to hang you, a lot of that sort of unspoken, like, here's how you, here's how you act. And here's how you project that you're a chill person that uh, that's going to be cool. Like there's no learning curve in, in terms of that, you know, um, I feel like that that's something Steve brings to the table. It's probably from before he can remember, he knew how to carry himself around. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, he does have a very like chill yeah, air yeah. about him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the opposite of what I grew up in. Cause the kind of music that I play now is not what I grew up playing. So like, I mean, my parents have been to like maybe one show of mine. Cause I know they'll just be like, that was loud. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my like parents I, were not musicians at all. They were, yeah. they were artists. So it was sort of like what, what I got from them was this sort of like art is important. And it's important to be an artist. And that's a, like, to think of yourself as an artist is, is super important, regardless of whether that's the thing you do for money or not. Like, that's the most important thing about you. I love that. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, that's a beautiful ethos, I think, to carry on. Yeah. Well, I think I the it. flip side of it is that sometimes you're not the artist. Right. You're the, you're the person Got who's it. there to play certain parts. <laughs> and if you go around <laughs> being the artist where that's not, that's not your role... <laughs> then you're then you're an annoying person <laughs> an annoying artist yeah <laughs> what if you were just like i'm gonna be an accountant this is my my path you know <laughs> like to an artist to an artist set of parents i feel like that could be alarming <laughs> i i mean they were they were so supportive like you know they were hippie artists I, I was just going to say the story I love is that when Craig first moved to New York, he was like working for like American Express or I can't remember what the job was, but it was something like very corporate, you know, like, it was Amex. Yeah. 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 And I feel like, I mean, I think that this probably happens in more than one band, but I think the coolest, th one of the coolest things about the whole study is that, you know, most bands don't hit it when they're like 35, you know, it always felt like it was, it was like, we get to do this. Like you've always gotten that feeling from the whole today. Like, Hey man, we get to do this. This is awesome. You know, like this wasn't necessarily what we expected to happen. And I don't think I've ever seen that really go away. Like it always feels like everyone's stoked that this is happening. So. I think that's true. Although I will say that the, I feel like I'm, you were just saying we were 35, like we were not that old. 
Yeah. That's right. The discourse weren't. around us at the time was like, oh, my God, they're ancient. Like, You're right. I was, tw- I was 27, like, Craig right. was like 30, 31, you know? Okay, thir- so 30, 30, 30. These old men out past their curfews are making... You're right. I am projecting because I'm 37 now, which is like, you know... That's what I think I about, like, you know, I see, you know, a lot of these, ba- like, I don't know, like, moves or cheek face or pup or whatever, like new band, like they're all in their mid late thirties. Like Rosenstock yeah. is 37, 38 probably. Yeah. Like, but that just, they're not, people aren't going around talking about how old they are. Was that less common? Like in the mid offs or am I just like, I guess projecting? it must've been, I don't really know. Cause I, I, I don't really know, but like we got the old steady, like immediately. Yeah. Like, well, oh. I don't know, dude, I'm 27. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there was also a lot of like, they don't even look like rock stars like that. Oh, yeah. kind of. Well, there was that. Yeah. yeah. I think what it, it was, it was a little bit of that. And it was a little bit of like, we were playing old fashioned music. Yeah. And it was a very stylized time for music. Like, you know, I mean, it was this... a very stylized. Yeah. You guys were wearing like the deep V's American apparel. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I still own some American apparel and it, it, I still like those items of clothing, but in general, we can leave that. Behind, I think. <laughs> I remember going into the American Apparel across from Music Hall of Williamsburg for the 10th anniversary show, which seems like a million years ago, almost a decade, actually. But um, we're coming up on the end here. Franz, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us today. This was truly wonderful. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Yeah, great conversation. And are you allowed to tease about your new book at all? Yeah, it's called Band People. Cool about uh, the working and creative lives of band people. I think I put on Instagram a, like a picture of the manuscript when I finished it, but um, then I've had a, like a brutal revision process that I'm, I think I'm finally going to finish this afternoon. Okay. Ooh, Happy to hear to you. And then, Congrats. And then get it off my desk. Well, Let's, we are. Really, thank you. Yeah. And we're really, we're looking forward to seeing you and just a couple weeks. Wow. Yeah, I think we'll all be there for the 20th anniversary show. So that'd be great. Yes. Very exciting. Enjoy your afternoon and good luck with the end of the revision process. Thank you. I'll see you guys in a few. We'll see you soon. Bye. Well, we've come to the part of the show that I know and you know, and we all know and love, which is that we tell you that there is so much joy in making this podcast for you. What we do in here and our screens. And we would like to spread a little of the joy that is in our own lives. Heidi, what is your so much joy this week? My so much joy is that I got to see a strange loop on Broadway with the playwright and composer and creator whose name is Michael Jackson. His his Instagram is like the living Michael Jackson. I guess something happened with the lead who is playing him, who is playing his, the character that's supposed to be him. And he ended up doing the matinee and the evening performance, just doing it and like very clearly had not been read well, he was not it was a surprise so he was like doing it with a script and everything but it was so special and it was so vulnerable because the show itself is it's so good it's rough it's like his experience as like a black gay man with like 
homophobic parents who really love Jesus and all that comes with it. And it was just so personal to see him do it. And like people were saying to me, like, oh, no one's ever going to see that again. But you were there for a once in a lifetime experience. And I was like, yeah, I felt like it. It felt like that. And I was with my friend Hallie, who I hadn't gotten to see in a really long time. So it was really nice to see her and have that really special experience. So that was my so much joy for this week. That's awesome. Desi, how about you? I so much joy is actually yours. So I didn't think I haven't thought of one separate from that. So I'll just say it was really nice to have Griffin come visit and I love spending time with him. It's so much fun. We watched, we binged Peacemaker, which he had not seen. If you have not seen Peacemaker, I highly recommend it because you are in for a ride. Um, but yeah, it was nice to see Griffin. Fun to hang out. Good to see him. That's awesome. I thanks Desi for batting me up there. Um, so my so much joy is a little bundle of joy. We finally got to announce this week that I am pregnant and so excited due in July and just really thrilled. We got to see an ultrasound the other day and baby was moving around and did a little somersault for us and we will find out the sex in like a week. So it's really exciting. And my other so much joy would be that I get to see both of you in just a couple weeks at the 20th anniversary Hold Steady show. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! 20 yeah, years old. of a band. It's, I'm still 18, so I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, it's young very as I confusing. Ever was. Very confusing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for understanding. We are the Home Study for Women. Mm. We fucking we love, love you. you. We love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.